You know, sometimes I wonder. What? Well, if I hadn't been Fox Books and you hadn't been the shop around the corner, and you and I had just met. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I would have asked for your number. And I wouldn't have been able to wait 24 hours before calling you up and saying, hey, how about... Oh, how about some coffee or, you know, drinks or dinner or a movie? For as long as we both shall live. Joe? And you and I would never have been at war. And the only thing we'd fight about would be which video to run on a Saturday night. So how, how are you? Okay. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, a little, little spent as usual, a little emotionally drained from, well, stories that might be good for the podcast one day, but, uh, <laughs> it was nice watching this beautiful movie that felt good. Yeah. You know, I actually, I feel like this is one of these movies that I should like, but I kind of don't like it <laughs> actually. It really? has it has all the ingredients of a film I would like. It's a rom-com. It had Nora Ephron involvement. Meg mm-hmm. Ryan. Never been too much of a Tom Hanks fan, but he's good in this context. He's good in this, yeah. Um, but I just, I've, I've watched, I've, it always takes me a few times to fit. I've had to watch it a couple of times for content. And every time it's just like, it's like pulling teeth to like sit down and finish it. I just don't like it. I don't know. I sort of get that about finishing it, but well, it was funnier than I remembered. And yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, it's so similar in a way to, well, the movies that it's kind of based on and the stories that it's based on, which we can get into as we introduce it in a moment here that, yeah, I don't know, maybe it feels like a little bit too formulaic for you or one of those things where it's like an AI where it has too many of the right ingredients. Yeah, you know, and it feel it feels like Meg Ryan's character is like I don't know how her character is different than even her character in um, Harry Met Sally, right? And I and I I don't know if it's like it's it was the last of this sort of cohort of films that I saw, yeah. so I don't know if it's just like at like by the time I got to by the time I got to it, I was just like I'm over this, or if there's really something about it, or maybe it's just that I've. I've had to watch it so many times um, in sort of like a like a more, uh, for lack of a better word, academic context. Right. I really just enjoyed it. <laughs> right. For work. Yeah. And anytime that that's, you know, we talked about that famously, of course, <laughs> on one of our uh, recent pods, how that that changes the enjoyment of something. But it's true. You know, when Harry met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, these are all pretty much the same character and and maybe indeed by the time we got to our topic for today you've got mail you were you didn't want the mail anymore yeah i was (laughs) i was old the mail (laughs) there are a lot of really interesting things about this movie maybe we should recap it for anyone who hasn't seen it yes i'm nana cates and you are Catherine d and we met online and today we're talking about you've got mail came out in 1998 and i always fumble paraphrasing uh movie synopses so (laughs) i'll let you describe it and then we we could jump right in okay it was based on a play, a Hungarian play called Parfumery, Perfume Shop. And, and then it was made into a uh, movie. And I, I think the play was from 1938. The movie was from 1940 called The Shop Around the Corner with Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart, who is notably a big inspiration on Tom Hanks and especially his performance in this movie, I think. It's a really cute movie, you know, talky sort of rom-com of the time. Also about two people that worked at a store together and didn't get along there and had pen pals that they would were falling in love with that, that ended up being each other, which is the premise of You've Got Mail too. So it's interesting to me, always notable what the 
pre-internet sort of equivalent of a story could be. And there, there usually are many. So in this story, as you said, it was in 1998, as a nod to the, the film and play that it was based on, Meg Ryan's character, Kathleen Kelly, owns a bookshop that her mother owned called The Shop Around the Corner. And it's kind of like a cute little sort of specialized bookstore in the Upper West Side in New York, which is where the, the film takes place of the kind that you'd seen near that place. I mean, they really don't have these anymore, which is kind of the plot of the film too. So she owns this little shop, the shop around the corner and is involved in a relationship, which is kind of funny, which I'd like to get into. This movie really did have a great cast, I would say. AOL is kind of, you know, new and exciting in its infancy. Obviously this, this title was a nice product placement for it. So she's got a pen pal that she met in a chat room and she sort of sneaks off to write to him at night while her kind of Luddite leftist journalist live-in boyfriend it talks about like the dangers of the internet. And her friend, her, her name is Shop Gal, and her pen pal's name is NYGuy152, something like that, real generic. And he turns out to be, was it John or Jane? All right, so I'm gonna- I'm <laughs> Go ahead. I'm do something super annoying. So her, her handle is Shop Girl, his is NY142, and he's Joe Fox. Joe Fox. And, and she's Kathleen Kelly. Yes. Did I not say Kathleen? Yeah, I think you did, but just, just to get the whole... The yeah. whole thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she's shop girl, not shop gal. That is actually significant. I think that I changed it to that. So yes, his actual name is Joe Fox, and he is the owner, mm, the heir, his... his father started a chain of bookstores called Fox Books. And it's kind of a stand-in for Barnes and Noble. And they're about to open one in the Upper West Side. And it will, you know, inevitably put her little shop around the corner out of business and and their pen pals. And they have this beautiful sort of email relationship. And then they meet in real life, you know, as he's moving in, getting ready to open his store and they have this this conflict. They have sort of a meet cute where he he walks into her bookstore with his his kid, who's not his kid, who's his nephew or something, some funny little detail like that. Um, and he kind of conceals his identity uh, straight away um, just because he's he's Fox of Fox Books and he knows he's going to put her out of business. Um, and then she meets him at a book party. They're both kind of like in intellectual circles with obnoxious partners. Hers played by Greg Kinnear really well. I love Greg Kinnear too. Um, the journalist and his played by Parker Posey, also hilarious. We're both like pretentious, insufferable <laughs> uh, snobs. Yeah. So they meet there, they meet again. They continue to have these kind of conflicts as they complain about these conflicts and their own struggles to their pen pals. Eventually he, as NY guy 152 suggests meeting and she agrees they already know each other by this point so he goes and sees her in the window of the restaurant where she's uh identifying herself by carrying a copy of pride and prejudice of course because that's another story that this is based on and that they talk about in the film so he sees that it's her actually his friend dave Chappelle, <laughs> a very strange casting choice and hilarious i forgot his part in this sees her and so rather than letting her down, he just joins her without telling her that he's the pen pal and they kind of continue to fight and bicker. And so she's let down by not meeting this pen pal. And then they, now he knows, right? So he feels conflicted now because he's still writing to her as NY guy and he has these feelings for her. So he sort of develops a friendship with her in real life or starts to, to kind of try to make amends. And by the end, when she proposes to meet NY guy again. She's developed feelings for him too. And it all, it all ends happily ever after. And also importantly, I think because he did put her out of business and she did have to close down her store while this happened, he, as his online persona, ended up encouraging her to write children's books. So he's also encouraged her to make this important, significant change in her life. And that's basically the summary. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, that does, that's, that's about it. It's a weird movie because one thing I thought watching this is it's, and that I think is maybe like the most salient today is he's a jerk in real life. Like he's kind of sociopathic. And I've seen in some of the reviews that people like people describe him as a jerk, but he's showing like a very specific part of himself to her 
And so if we're completely from Kathleen's perspective and we, you know, we trust her, her affection for his, you know, online persona, we sort of forgive his like in real life jerkiness. And what it reminded me of is like these debates or clashes that happen on like Twitter specifically where it's like um, some anonymous account has like controversial political opinions and then people come out of the woodwork to say, oh, they're, this is actually a really nice person. And people who use social media more as themselves will like often like come in and be like, no, well, you can't square these two things. Like if this person is posting, you know, like XYZ takes, they have to be a bad person. And it kind of felt like the reverse of that somehow. Like, mm. I don't know, as I'm saying that out loud, like maybe that, that was a really weird takeaway <laughs> for you've got mail. <laughs> Well, mm, no, I mean, first of all, I don't agree with that, that you can't square those things, right? I don't think you do either, that like someone can have bad takes and also be a nice yeah. person. I think that happens all the time. Um, I think that it's also probably fairly common that a person on the inside has noble ideals about themselves and thinks that they're being a good person and doing the right things, even though their outward actions don't suggest that. But I think that, you know, Joe Fox is, he is kind of a jerk, but like, he's also funny, I think. And we see him in a few sort of limited settings, right? We see him first when he's with his coworkers and, and his awful dad and his awful girlfriend, who are all awful people, not his coworker, Dave Chappelle's cool. <laughs> and he's all right when he's with him. But when he's with his dad and when he's with his uh, his girlfriend, Parker Posey, he's reacting to like really awful people. So I kind of forgive him for that. He does take his his kids who are his aunt and his, his uncle, right? Coincidentally. <laughs> yeah, that's another little reference to another uh, book, I think. He takes them out, you know, to go to have a day at like Central Park and go shopping. So, and he has a dog that he's, affectionate too. And then when he's with Kathleen, they, they're in conflict from the beginning because they represent these two different interests. But I don't know that he's that much of a jerk otherwise, or that he's sociopathic. I think sociopathic's a bit much. It, that was something that I saw recurring in people's reactions to the movie, but he is, he is a jerk. Like the, you know, the, there's a scene where they're at this, this book party, as you mentioned, and he like scrapes all the caviar off yeah um, salad he, but i guess that's that's cute i mean there's like there's little things there's little like jerkish things like that throughout the film but that might also be being played for like comic relief although i will say like him withholding his identity for so long struck like always strikes me as like a little bit strange it is strange and you know it's strange and he is a jerk and i think it's just me personally, I would forgive that. And that's probably wrong on my part because I feel like with the caviar, for instance, it is played a little bit for comic relief. She also sort of somewhat righteously says like, you can't take all the caviar when he just kind of took maybe a little bit more than one should given that it's a garnish. But then after she says it, he scoops out the rest of it. Yeah. I don't know. I think it, it's that type of jerk that is I mean, it's the Mr. Darcy character too. Right? Yeah, I was going to say that, right. There's this like recurring theme of like how, how Kathleen's read Pride and Prejudice so many times. And then he, then Joe reads Pride and Prejudice. And it's like a little, it's a little Easter egg. Right. As rom-coms love to do. <laughs> yes. And to be self-referential like that. Yeah. And that's, that is the Mr. Darcy character where, you know, he comes off as haughty and aloof at the beginning, but you realize that it's just his, British constipation or his inability to express himself, but like deep under that, his motives aren't bad. He just, he can't express his kinder or more affectionate side. He has trouble expressing that. I think that's the archetype. Yeah, I think, I think you might be right. So I guess there's two ways we could take this conversation. One, uh, you know, another sort of interesting thing about this film is it feels like it's less about the impact of the internet or internet romances, or uh, this sort of like epistolary love, and more more about like globalization and and, and capitalism. Yes, I had this. Um, and it's not, yeah, it's, it's like not even really about like you know, it's not like a prescient sort of Amazon's about to take over the world. No, it's it's it's, it's like it's about like big business. 
Yeah, it's literally, I mean, Barnes and Noble at the time, it's definitely molded after that. They have like a, it had a different name in the movie, but they come with like the coffee shop, just the way Barnes and Noble at the time all had Starbucks in them. And yeah. And we're wiping out little stores like the Strand, Sunset Books, that's that's LA. But, you know, little bookstores, like that was that was definitely happening. And I agree, I, that's the sense that I got more about it than, than the internet. And I think in a way, though, that's an interesting feature of the film because, you know, I didn't remember the plot of the shop around the corner when I saw this again now. Um, but the fact that this was based on this old play where people had pen pals just goes to show that it's not really so much about the internet. I mean, it's it's a timeless romantic comedy slash comedy of errors trope of like a case of kind of mistaken identity or the person that you least expect that you're at odds with becoming the person that you're actually in love with. That's sort of the romance. And then socially, if you can say it's a it has any like <laughs> point of view in that respect, then I, I would say that, yeah, it's about like faceless kind of corporate, big corporation. Right. But like the interesting thing is like, there's this sort of utopianism still about the internet, like, like the real monster here, right, is Amazon. And it's not like Amazon wasn't relevant in 1998. By 1999, Jeff Bezos is like man of like time man of the year or something. And they had actually sued Barnes and no, Barnes and Nobles had sued Amazon for say like identifying as like the largest bookstore of the world or something. But so it's so funny that like in the background, this like like the more immediate threat of Amazon is just like completely unacknowledged and it's right. really, like big bad Barnes and Noble. Um, but at this point, like Barnes and Noble was already like, uh oh, you know, um really. Like, Wow. Yeah, I I mean, I if you know if I recall correctly, like by two thousand, God, maybe like two thousand three, like Barnes and Noble was like shutting down like Borders and Walden Books, but yes, uh, yes, still like there is like, but like it was still like really. Well, Barnes and Noble was Amazon. thriving, I think. Sure. Yeah. Because um, I think that's right around the time that so I moved to New York City in two thousand four. And there was a Barnes and Noble. There were many Barnes and Nobleses. <laughs> and there was uh, one demonic corner, I think, on Astor Place, or maybe it was Union Square, where there was a Barnes and Noble. And then across the street from it was a Starbucks. And across the street from that was another Starbucks. And in the Barnes and Noble was a Starbucks. Uh, so there was like a, a noted comedy bit about that because there were so many. But Barnes and Noble was doing great at that point i think but maybe i think that happened pretty fast though that you're right that it uh yeah like the the like at some point you know these indie bookstores become almost like completely irrelevant mm -hmm. and it's like it's it's really the the battlefield is uh barnes and noble exclusively like fuck borders fuck walden books fuck whatever else yeah and, then, <laughs> and amazon it's like these two behemoths and it's like sort of it's kind of acknowledged in the film but not really like there's a great line um, I think it's like one of the first lines of the film where Greg Kinnear's character uh, says, do you know what this is? This referring to the internet, uh, the end of Western civilization yes. as we know it. You think this machine is your friend, but it's not. And like, we don't really revisit that because follow like all like subsequent um, like engagements with the internet or commentary on the internet is like, like immediately following that is this like evaluation of cyber sex as right have you had cyber sex like right but it's but it's, you it's it's treated like physical world sex like they, it's, there's no meaningful difference and then it's like this real social release valve where it's like if you're lonely you could go to the bar you could also like dial up to aol and go into a chat mm -hmm. room and there's no different like there's this very like optimistic perspective of it and it's not like seen yeah. as like hiding away um there's this really great line um, I was reading a book and just like coincidentally, they, uh, the author uh, mentioned You've Got Mail. And she says, the movie portrays positively a new kind of disembodied love based on self-revelation, a rational monitoring of the relationship and elective affinity through disembodied technology. It's narrative convention subscribed to display and enact an opposite conception of love based on an irresistible and irrational attraction in which the body the co-presence of two physical persons is essential to the sentiment of love. In, in the screwball comedy, 
as in the best romantic tradition, love erupts precisely despite the conscious kagito, oh god, so embarrassing to pronounce that, of the protagonists. Moreover, when the internet pen pals do meet, given that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are already in love, their cognitive knowledge of each other does not play any role at all in their final mutual declaration of love, bodily attraction, and not the internet emotional affinity, has already done the volatile work of falling in love. So the internet romance turns out to be a fairly traditional romance after all, where the, no the knowledge the protagonists have accumulated of each other prior to their meeting plays a very small role. Um, so I thought that was like, I don't know, that was like a very interesting uh, assessment of the film. So they're saying that the knowledge that they've collected prior to their meeting, meaning um, the exchanges that they had before they actually ran into each other in, in the real world, like the like what what was meant by that um so she's saying so the author is saying that like the movie like simultaneously like suggests that it's like a, a pure type of love because right. it's like based on self-revelation right and it's like these to... right it's like these two true selves connecting but even though it has this very optimistic uh perspective of the internet it like immediately undercuts itself because they've been falling in love the whole time without really knowing it right. based on their person-to-person -person physical world interactions. Um, I probably could have done a better job reading that paragraph, and I'm sorry for, for <laughs> no, that. No, it's just, it, it was a little, uh, it was a little heady. I think me and I think the readers too will appreciate the paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So that's true, of course. I mean, and that's, that's what makes the, that's the conceit of the film, right? But I mean, personally, do you think that there's, I don't know, I have a very ambivalent opinion on this particular subject and experience with it. And where we suggest that one way of looking at it, a way that we've looked at this a lot, this sort of finding love online phenomenon is hiding away, avoiding intimacy, being deceptive, sort of taking shortcuts, not taking risks right? Trying to control things that are often scarily out of one's control. But also there's the option of self-revelation, you know, revealing one's soul, um, developing a very literary connection. And I think that both those things are true. And I think that it's not necessarily... So first of all, while that's true about this particular film, that they happen to fall in love in real life after meeting... I watched the film in a more naive way where the reason that happened is because they already have this connection and whatever that connection is them. It's their souls speaking to each other. I really like the way they write to each other in, in the. Me, in me the too. I mean, I think with the, with the author of that passage I read, it's, it's in the book cold intimacies, by the way, um, okay. what she misses is like, she seems to think that this is like, they're almost two different people, like the online self and the embodied right. self without like considering that, like, because it's, they're the same people that connect, like, even though they don't consciously know, they yeah. may subconsciously pick up on the obvious similarities because they're, they're talking to one another. Yeah. Their banter, their patter, their back and forth. Right. And, and so, and, you know, that's, that's sort of exemplified in like, you know, at the end of the film, when Meg Ryan's character, Kathleen figures out that, it's it's been Tom Hanks all along. She says, I was hoping it was you. Right, exactly. And I, I think also, you know, even the first time that they argue, when they meet again at the, the book party, which that scene, I forgot how funny that scene was too, though, of their partners, Parker Posey and Greg Kinnear, sort of having their moment about each other's work, like fawning over each other and how obnoxious they were. And like Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks kind of looking at each other Wow, that was going on. I thought that was great. <laughs> um, Me too. Yeah. So like there are moments like that too, the whole thing about the caviar, like their humor is the same. And when he comes and sits down with her at the restaurant where she was supposed to meet, you know, NY152, they have one of these typical rom-com fights where they're both articulate and funny and you know, they sort of get into the weeds with things and it's kind of like a sexual tension banter, you know, like the sizzle is in the conflict. You know, they obviously have chemistry there. So I feel like that's also an extension of their, that's something that might come across in their 
sort of kinder, softer, less complicated online relationship. I thought it was interesting too, that they were both partnered at the beginning, like living with people and sneaking off to have this basically like kind of beginning of an emotional affair online. And that was just. So this is so interesting because there's, so there's this phenomenon called cyber widows that used to be written about much more. Um, I think the first time I saw it was in the book, cyber gypsies, which is kind of like, I think it, I think it's sort of like auto fiction about a guy who's addicted to multi-user dungeons, which are a type of text-based role play. Mm-hmm. Um, or it might be a memoir, but it really straddles that line. But it's, it's this phenomenon you see a lot of like people thinking that like their emotional affair online doesn't count, especially because sending photos back and forth was very yeah. rare. And, okay. it's, it, and people weren't necessarily doing it in the nine, like they could, but yeah. they weren't necessarily they weren't, doing it. Right. So because it was all text space, it was just sort of like, it was real, but like the cognitive dissonance was a little bit easier. Um, yeah. And so they would call them cyber widows, not only like is your partner addicted to the internet, but they have a relationship on the internet mm-hmm. and they're starting to ignore you in place of it. And it's like, well, what do you do with it? And and even then, it, you know, it wasn't a clear cut answer. I think today, honestly, it wouldn't be a clear cut answer. I was, um, I was interviewing people, you know, I, I occasionally interview people about their lives online for my mm-hmm. writing. And I was interviewing a couple of folks yesterday about e-romance. And one of the people I spoke to was telling me about how like he doesn't know how to make sense of e-dating because he's like gotten into situations where he's been in these like flirtatious like emotionally charged correspondences with women who have boyfriends and like on some level it feels like very significant and like yes this is a real relationship but there's no there's no physical component so it's like is it really cheating and like how much is he letting his like imagination get away from from him. And it's, it is, it is a really interesting question. I think like probably once you're getting to the point where you're sending nude photos or something, or like you're having cyber sex and like, whatever, right? Like you, it has to count, but oh, definitely, <laughs> but like in the, but in the, yeah, I mean, like it's, you know, g- give it up. If you think that you're going to get a pass on that, like you're delusional, but when, but he brought up, or if you do, you shouldn't. Right. Like, like that certainly is a form of infidelity, but he brought up a good point where he was sort of describing like a similar relationship to what we see in You've Got Mail. And it's like, well, there is a connection there, but also like, what do we really do with that? Because it's in this liminal space. Right. So I think that the point is kind of like, do we call it infidelity or not? Doesn't really matter necessarily because it's, I guess it's up to the relation, you know, the individuals involved in the relationship, but like, is, is it potentially a problem or not? So if if it's a, a relationship like the one in You've Got Mail, and I guess it just, it kind of stays like that and the people are okay with that, then you could look at that as like a platonic pen pal and maybe people should have more of those. And it could be someone that is just a friend or that is kind of a mentor that you write about various things with. And it could get a little bit intimate in certain ways that maybe someone's romantic partner doesn't share, you know, certain kind of sensibilities they don't share or something. And that can be fine. You know, in our culture, I think we, we expect our romantic partners to be absolutely everything like best friend, lover, co-parent, et cetera, et cetera. When that's kind of a high expectation, a lot of the time it's romantic, but it's difficult to meet. So it's okay to get, you know, different sorts of, I guess, intimacy elsewhere, But if it is going in a direction and if it's with one person and if it's like she she sneaks out of the bedroom or wherever they were to kind of go talk to them at night and is starting to, you know, the next day she walks into her store um, repeating things that he'd said, like about the smell of pencils and stuff like that. If it's affecting you like that, then I think, yeah, I think it, it, it is infidelity because it will naturally take something from the Your relationship you're in. Yeah. I will say that like, I'm, I'm with you up until like how it's affecting you because I, I think people just get crushes and like, you can't like it, it, that, that can't possibly be the barometer. But if I think there is something about like, if you start disclosing things to 
this this person as opposed to your partner things that you that yeah. would have been normal to share with them and right, it's starting no. to eat into that then then it's like all right you know yeah. like I know. I totally agree. Yes, of course. Everything's an issue of degrees. Always. It's normal to get crushes, even in real life, even when you're in a relationship like that is kind of how the human mind works. And that's, that's fine. Um, it's if you, if it becomes consuming and you also start giving more time to it and like emotional attention, then yeah, that's probably, you know, to a degree also a sign that there's something missing in the current relationship. I mean, her relationship with Greg Kinnear was, he is, very, um, I guess, idealistic and self-involved. And he ends up uh, telling her that he he actually doesn't love her. And he has all these flirtations with these other women and stuff too. And they're just, you know, he's kind of silly. <laughs> they're very different. Um, so there was something missing there that she's feeling she gets more of with a NY152. It's, it's interesting. I feel like you you don't hear a lot about these types of relationships anymore unless you're talking to people who self-identify as very online. I've heard a lot of stories about like two anonymous Twitter users or something connecting in this way. And then some cases like taking it, you know, not just meeting in real life, but like go as far as like getting married. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I, I never hear it. I never hear it from like normie friends or friends were like, the type of internet experience they have is like very much like their person. Like it's, it's, it's not as um, emotionally driven. It's, it's usually like, um, you know, I, this guy found me on Instagram somehow. And then like it escalated pretty quickly to sexting. And then he lived 20 minutes away and we started dating, but right. I, I don't, I don't hear this sort of like, like epistolary um, <laughs> like love letter type thing, unless the person is like, yeah, I just, there's someone on the discord server and like, there's something about it. And I think that's, I don't know, maybe this is just a like sampling bias or something. Uh, no, I, I think you're probably right. I think, I mean, you know, in full disclosure, I'm very sympathetic to this because even though I haven't had this experience with someone that I don't know, as in like just met online, I have had this experience with someone that I do know who they are as a person, didn't meet just sort of serendipitously online and know people in common, et cetera. But a lot of the relationships sort of developed that way. So it's not quite that because you know who the person is, you know that they're real, you know what they look like, you know where they live, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the getting to know process happens through correspondence, I'd say. That's the part that I'm very, very, very sympathetic to. I, I would be- I find very I, romantic. I, I think so too. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious about um, what people like, like dating app situations that like work out, like what, like how many people um, have a very long, like mediated stage. Um, you know, I was thinking, I was taking sort of an inventory of this recently and most of my significant relationships started online or were like mediated for like a very long time. Yeah. Um, you know, where it's just like, before we ever, ever met, like there's just like a hundred hours of phone calls or something. Mm -hmm. Um, like at least at least three relationships I've been in, even if I met them in sort of like or you like met service. once or something, yeah, exactly. Right, like it, it was like a more normal circumstance. It was like I'd still like the lion's share <laughs> of our getting to know each other was like we lived thousands of miles away. Yes, and like we just talked on the phone. Same, and, and, and so you know, I think that's very similar. When I thought about it, I it kind of made me realize like I think you could actually fall in love with someone like through Skype or Zoom or FaceTime, and I hundred percent. Yeah, and I I think that's really kind of underappreciated um, and obscured because like you you usually do just end up meeting the person in, in real life and then the relationship evolves naturally. Not everyone ends in a marriage or is super long term, but like like I I've this is this is a line I think I've said on this podcast, but I think that you can you could become attached to someone in a serious way during a mediated sexual experience probably not necessarily like text-based but like if you are if you're having like skype sex yeah like i think that is actually comparable to in-person sex and i think I, so like, too yeah i don't know what that what that means it just feels like a really significant thing that maybe we should pay more attention to yeah I mean, I think in a way you have to be sort of a romantic for that to happen. It takes a commitment of of time, of patience. It takes effort of like verbal sort of effort, right? It's something that is 
kind of a romantic thing to do to begin with. And most people are just like a little bit too practical for that, but it can absolutely, I mean, why not? Like a lot of the same chemicals that go off would go off, right? Right. It would be fewer of them, maybe. I mean, it probably happens to the the same people who like, you know, pair bond during in-person sexual experience. The numbers are probably very similar. Like if it's just something you're doing to pass the time or whatever, you're just, it's, I think there's people like for whom physical world sex is like basically masturbatory. And yes. if, but other times, you know, it's a it's a real expression of of love and, and desire and, and you do become attached because there's so much emotional investment there. Right. So I think and a right, transformative if, experience even for people who experience sex that way, they could experience cyber sex that way. Like you said, it's about the emotional attachment. And that might not be most people. Right. But yeah. Yeah, but for the, you know, for the people who experience that in, in the real world, they probably experience that in the virtual world. And I, I haven't like totally coalesced my feelings on it, but like it starts calling into question these other things like, you know, maybe words are violence, right? Like there's all these like sort mm. of, maybe not that specifically, but I feel like it, there's all these other questions about like mediated relationships that I feel like that kind of brings up. I mean, the and the other way to look at it is like, shit, how much of our our relationships are just like purely psychological. Is this really a simulation? I mean, there's, I don't know how to evaluate it. It just feels like once it hit me, I was like, this, it, it feels like a key. Yes. I just don't know what the lock is. You know it I does, mean? right. It does. It feels <laughs> when you sort of have revelation and, and realize, you know, how, like you said, it's about, you know, well, really I'm feeling all these types of ways, but this is just words coming from signals on a screen and I can hold it in my hand or look at it this way. And this entire sort of life, I'm having these like transformative life experiences as a result of some binary code. It is kind of um, a little destabilizing. It is. And the other thing it gets me, and this might be a little bit too off the rail, so I'll I'll just say the one thing and go back (laughs) on topic, but like People who develop emotional attachments to like fictional characters or feel very transformed by, you know, like sex scenes in movies that they were like heavily involved in the fandom of. For me, it just brings up all these questions. Mm. What are, what are we capable of attaching ourselves to and why? And what are the mechanisms that drive that? And should we be taking this more seriously instead of just being like, ah, this happens. It's whatever, you know hopefully you meet the person or like this, you know, so-and-so is a freak or like, it, it feels <laughs> it feels like there's probably been a lot of psychological research done that I just don't know about. But no, like, no, I don't think so. Not any good psychological research. I mean, no, I would guess here's, here, here's another thing that is, is relevant to this um, that I think I've also probably brought up on the show before. Um, there's this Israeli study done about something called digital psychosis. And, you know, I can't speak to the study in too much detail, Um but I remember like looking it over and all three instances of digital psychosis. So by digital psychosis, like a psychotic episode that was somehow triggered by digital interaction. Okay. It was people who had been in e-romances. Uh-huh. Um, and like one example that stood out was like this woman was so sort of like chemically dependent on her internet boyfriend that she uh-huh. hallucinated him touching her. And she went and she sought medical help for that because she was like, I feel him. And it's like, well, is that, is that psychosis or is it like, like, like what's actually going on there? I I don't know. It really stuck with me. Well, yeah. Is it, I mean, what, what were the other symptoms? Was it making her psychotic or was she just feeling him touching? Uh, I, I think she was, she was just, she was just feeling the touch. I mean, another person, like, I, I think what happened was like, there had been like some kind of breakup and it had like caused like, you know, psychotic depression. Um, I have to revisit the study because I don't remember it super clearly, but I, I remember like seeing that like all three case studies had been triggered by like high volumes of communication mm-hmm. with like a romantic valence. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's, hardly different than most people wouldn't go into a psychosis over a breakup period. But for those who do, I mean, it's the same kind of wiring of person that could, yeah, just as easily go into one over a breakup of a relationship that was only transpiring online. And there have been those cases of, you know, the few 
what was that case with that girl with the eyebrows? <laughs> you know who I'm talking about, Michelle. Oh, oh God. Yeah, that, yes. Yeah, that, okay, that story, like, I had to tell my family to, like, not bring up that case because it was, like, I couldn't even hear about it until, like, this year because it was so sad. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. didn't, like, I, but because I was so triggered by the, so for uh, listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, um, there was this, this young girl who, which was not young, but she was, like, she was a teenager when this happened. Something. Yeah. Yeah. She, she basically encouraged her boyfriend to kill himself but what i didn't what i didn't know is they they were internet dating they were were, yes they were internet dating they had met once but their whole relationship took place online and uh there were also many other complicating factors like they both had psychiatric problems they they kind of made a game of it where this happened repeatedly where he would say that he was going to they were both suicidal or said they were and they would kind of like goad each other in this way and then be fine the next day so it wasn't quite uh, the fact that she was convicted for that i think was wrong but that's the story it was a pretty much in, it was entirely mediated relationship with these two mentally ill i would say and depressed teenagers the thing about that story that like prevented me from like ever like following it or like watching the hulu adaptation or whatever was I think it happened in 2015. And I remember, cause I remember seeing it on our morbid reality. Um, and I, that was like the only year I was looking at it. it was, or, or maybe it was 2014 or like 2014, 2015. I was like a regular on that subreddit. And the kid who had killed himself looked a lot like my sister's boyfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I like saw this picture and I like thought of him immediately. And then like the first line of the article was his grandmother saying, he was doing so much better and I just lost my shit. And I was like, I can't Mm -hmm. ever, I can't ever hear about this again. I just Mm -hmm. like, I don't, I can't know about it. I don't. And I, and it, I mean like (laughs) years passed. It was, it's like today. Can I hear about it or not erupt into tears? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, really sad case. It's, it's sad for the girl too, though. I mean, it's just totally, I, yeah, yeah, I I wasn't able to see her perspective until recently, but it, it is, it is sad for her because I mean, the thing that I think that we also haven't caught up on is like words mean different things. Not that they're not, not that it's not significant, but I think definitions really do evolve in a very particular way in online contexts that is very hard to convey. Um, One example that I come back to a lot is like someone who says like, I hate women, right? Like the incel who says, I hate women may not literally mean that. No. But it, it's it's like, it's it's some kind of, it's it's like a currency of some kind, but it's so hard to explain if you're just some like rando normie who's like scrolling his timeline. And I just, know, I, I yeah. don't, I always have a really hard time with that because it's, it is hard to explain. People just see words and I forgot what it was like to be that normie and like see words. I don't know if I ever was actually. But uh, at one point, I guess I could have related to it, where if I saw a statement like that or a statement of a certain kind that seemed bigoted or charged with hate or something, I would at least see it as mm, reprehensible myself. Whereas now, I don't know, like there's, I feel like anybody could look at their own life and the way that they code switch whether in mediated communications or just in person, depending on who they're with and realize like how differently you talk to different people you're with and just try to realize that like, maybe there's a, a translation that needs to happen before you judge what this means. I think, but I think, you know, I think part of it too is like, we don't, we can't even make sense of the trend. Like we know it's happening, but it's so I, I don't totally understand it. I just like, I know it when I see it. I mean, another really good example of this is like, there are plenty of people online who are genuinely racist and they're racist in different ways. And there's people who like you will encounter who are racist, but they also aren't. It's like, it's ironic and like they mean it, but they kind of don't. And when they're tested, it's like, it's some weird liminal space where they actually are just both. And it's, you don't know, like you can't, what do you yes. do with that? It's well, just- like you said, it's it, it's in different ways. I mean, to me, all that stuff is, it really comes down to actions and it comes down to intentions even less so. Though for me, that's a big one, you know, is what is this 
fueled by and does it change the way that you treat people it's also interesting because i think like so much of the problem too is like when we're on twitter or we're on discord it's us but it's also an avatar that mm -hmm. is detached from us and we're not really feeling it in our body and no. it's not test and the social dynamics aren't as such where it's not even really a good re reflection no. of real life it's like it's kind of a role-playing game yes. so it's it's you're playing a role and it's like you you mean it but you also don't mean it right um, and everybody's game is a different game everyone's playing a different game too like so when some people are playing i don't know call of duty someone else is playing the sims and so the rules of engagement are very different and for some people you know that is just part of how you talk online in your experience like you know the people that repeatedly make I mean, there's just so many stripes of this, like on Twitter, for instance, there's the people that are like consider themselves like good sense talkers and will say things about IQ and like race realism, ad nauseum. And you can tell that that's not really coming from a place of racism. Often these people aren't really white necessarily. It certainly rubs me the wrong way to see, but not, not in the sense where I think this person's horrible and racist, just like, oh, this is kind of stupid. And there's the people that joke about it constantly. There's like incels that call each other curry cell and stuff. And some people are horribly offended by that. And to me, that's like a cute, funny little thing, you know? And then there's people who are, you know, even people who are screaming for like, who are making like actual racist sounding statements that sound bigoted and don't sound and sound pejorative. Still on some level, you can tell it's a joke and they're being edgy and you could just kind of feel that. And some people will consider that, well, it doesn't matter because what they're saying has an impact. It doesn't matter if they're just being edgy. Like that's the, is this even still a thing? R remember when you could be racist without knowing it and everybody had to apologize for singing along to some rap video when they were 11 because they were being racist without knowing it? Is that still, do people still think like that? Like re like retroactively racist? I yes. And, and even without, even with zero knowledge, zero ill intentions, like literally just an 11 year old singing along to a rap video and posting it online was, was racist and retroactively. Yes. You, you should see it that way that you were. Um, I, I think that we sort of used all our cards on that. I don't <laughs> think that's, a, I, I I've noticed like increasingly, um, from like the mainstream and the left, the sort of like, all right, we we burnt out that avenue and like eventually everyone's gonna go down with the ship if we keep canceling people over okay. that. Okay. I think that, yeah, I think that was like a very like specific moment in time. Yeah. Which is so crazy to me, like when rightists will say like, oh, we're just gonna keep getting woker and woker and woker. And it's like, well, that doesn't make business sense. Like, no. <laughs> like you, you can't lock everyone out of society. At some point you need to like reorg a little bit so, you could start taking people's money again and not everyone exactly. can be communicated. <laughs> right. And yet you could see this happening as we speak with like, you know, even just newspapers and stuff have, having to kind of like soften up a little bit to, in order to get back there, some of their audience, et cetera. Like, yeah, there's a limit to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're definitely, going to see a wave of self. I mean, I think we're already seeing a wave of self-criticism, honestly. I think so too. It's inspiring. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you really didn't like this movie. Like I could kind of see why in a way that it was like too formulaic or has too many of the right ingredients, but like on this topic, I, I mean, I just so relate to the topic as we discussed. And I think the whole like falling in love via correspondence, which goes back, you know, hundreds of years and, and more and more to like pen pals and published letters and things, which I think we should talk about on the, the pod one day, make an episode for that. And, and it was just, I thought I liked the acting. I thought it was cute. We didn't have to worry about portrayals of the internet because it was just AOL and there wasn't much of it. There was a cute little uh, sort of detail, in, I think in the wiki for this, that the website for the movie was the object of, of criticism of bad 90s web design for a long time. And it was up until just a few years ago, I think. Oh, that's I I didn't I didn't see that. I wish I wish I had uh I wish I, I wish I knew that. That's really cute. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I didn't, I don't know. I think I partially didn't like it just because it just like wasn't, I don't know, I didn't connect with it. I connect with the subject matter, but there's just something, I think I was just burnt out on like Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, there's only so many, like it's sleepless in Seattle and I'm, I'm out of here. Right. Uh, <laughs> this is, ba- I mean, it's also so similar to that. That, that was another movie, which I guess we could uh, say is, kind of based on the pride and prejudice theme which i feel like all all romances or rom-coms at least are based on like three books really and like or four and like three of them are by jane austen but they had a like a pen pal concealed identity type of relationship there too where i think she was a journalist and his son called into the radio, like saying he wanted to meet a, a new mom or a partner for his dad, who was a widower. Um, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think you're right that it's, uh, it's, it's only those, th- I mean, it's not like three books, but there's only so many story templates. Yeah. And the, the most common ones are, I, I would say like this first impressions mistake, which was the original title, I think for Pride and Prejudice. Uh, when she was writing it, where it's like the wrong person. And then the the Emma, which is the coolest, like trying to set someone up with their friend, ends up falling in love with them herself and a few more. Yeah. And, and a lot of a lot of Shakespeare. So I, I think it's like Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Taming of the Shrew. It's a big one. Yeah. Twelfth Night is the other one that gets a lot of air night, airtime. Yeah. So I, I guess that's I guess that's it for You've Got Mail. Yeah. All right. Well, quickly, we'll also add that... Um, Sometimes when you see a movie from 1998, as I just did, and realize that like you could have Dave Chappelle being like the best friend sidekick saying stuff like you're going to send her ass back to the projects on food stamps, like a single white woman and saying like, we might as well tell people we're opening up a crack house instead of their store. And like that, that was a, I think that would be too edgy for a um, PG or maybe it's PG 13, like kind of rom-com nowadays. No, I think I think it's coming back. Like there's this Netflix original I saw and there was a lot of and they had like Farrakhan jokes. <laughs> which which I mean that feel like that that kind of feels out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think we are I, I know people hate this take, but I do think we are sort of like rebalancing to maybe not super far back, but we might be like walking it back to like 2013, you know? <laughs> oh. Why would anyone hate that take? Like, please bring it on. Well, people, people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Stuff is like irrevocably woke. I don't think so. I think you oh, know, I think you have to like shuffle back and forth. Like, even yeah. if we're ultimately like, you know, dedicated to progress or whatever, like you have to take two steps back to like yes. open the market and then two steps forward. It's, I, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than just forever. Definitely. Right. Yeah. It's always, there's always a general direction, but also always a pendulum swing and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. Um, <laughs> all right. All right. Um, cool. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Baby, why did we all alone? And if it wasn't for the music, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah. Last night a DJ saved my life. Last night a DJ saved my life from a broken heart. 